0: Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Our musical team does deserve that acknowledgement that you just gave them, and they love the Lord, and they came out this morning to be used by the Lord, and their desire has been accomplished. We thank you all for serving the Lord in this way. I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 John, not the Gospel of John, but the first epistle of John. If you're unfamiliar with the whereabouts of the books of the Bible, it's over near the back. If you go to the book of Revelation, you probably know that's the last book in the Bible. And then move forward about three books, you're in 1 John. And this morning we're going to look at a passage from 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. And by the way, we have children in the room. Did you recognize that's awesome to have children in the room? Yeah. And I'm asking the Lord that you will be able to concentrate on what we look at in his word. God will speak to you and the children will be children. Uh, Let me give you a little story about that. When I was probably about three years old, I was in a church that didn't have a nursery and so all the children were in the building with their parents. And it was a small building. The church was just beginning. It became a fast growing, in fact, the fastest growing church at that time in the city of Memphis, Tennessee. And that's a city that's once, at that time, actually boasted of having more churches than service stations. I won't comment on why there were so many churches, but there were. And At any rate, and I don't really remember this, you know you are told stories as a child that you think you remember when you were in adulthood, but really you've heard them so many times, you probably don't remember their happening. And this probably is one of those stories. But I was misbehaving as far as my father was concerned, and he picked me up. I don't know how rough he was in handling me, but he picked me up, And as we walked out the door, I was reported as having saying, Daddy, don't whip me. (laughs) So if some father or mother takes a child out and you hear that kind of thing, don't report them to the CPS, okay? (laughs) We're grateful for our children. And there aren't many churches, really, as old as our church is, which still have children, being born into the families who make up the church. It's a beautiful thing. I'm digressing pretty much, okay? It's not because I'm not prepared to preach, I don't think. You'll be the judge of that. But it's a wonderful thing to be in a church family that has babies who are in the crib all the way to people in their 90s who are part of our church. That's the way that family of God should look because it's not in God's plan to have a church that's just made up of young people or just made up of old people, but people who run the spectrum of possibilities as far as age is concerned. Okay, now back to the Bible. Verse 4 of chapter 3 of 1 John reads this way. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared, this is speaking of Jesus, of course, in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or known him. Now let me pause just a moment. This is one of those passages of scripture that really eats at people and probably should to a degree, but not to the degree that reading it at face value would yield, because we know we sin. In fact, John knew those to whom he wrote this letter were sinning and would sin. Go back to chapter 1, would you, for just a moment. We'll look at verses 8 through verse 1 of chapter 2. And this is what we read. If we say that we have no sin, he's talking to him about himself. John is not using we editorially, he's including himself and the other apostles if you read the introduction. If we, including myself, John would say, say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And here's the relief. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, he gets back to where he began, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. In other words, God tells us that we're sinners. Even as we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, we still have the power. Capacity and the tendency and the reality of committing sin. And we'll get to what that looks like in a moment too when we go back to chapter three. In verse one of chapter two, my little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. The purpose of this book. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. The word advocate is the same word that John record, reports Jesus is using when he says, I will ask the Father, to give you another helper. It's that same word in the original language, helper, advocate. In this case, it is indicating that Jesus Christ is our defender. He's our defense attorney before God the Father when we are accused by Satan who accuses brothers and sisters in Christ day and night with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So let's go back to our passage of Scripture and understand this. When we come to know Jesus Christ, our desire is not to sin. In fact, David, in a moment of great candor in his Psalms, which he was quite capable of disclosing his own weakness, he loved the Lord so much, but also we know that he had tendencies to sin. And this is what he writes in one of the Psalms. He says, My sin troubles me. When you sin and you know it, the Holy Spirit convinces you of it. Does it bother you when you sin? Well, that's a very good sign that you do know Him and you love Him, and it pains you to find yourself in such a situation. Verse 5 says, And you know that He appeared in order to take away sins. In him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. We've talked about what that means in John 15. Like a branch in a vine, we're to depend completely upon the Lord for giving us his righteousness. Little children, no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, and here again, that's referring to Jesus. Jesus is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. So, in this passage of Scripture, we're going to read two more verses, but in this passage of Scripture, we are told the two reasons that Jesus came into the world. Why Christmas is Christmas? It's because he came to take away our sins. And secondly, to destroy the work of the devil. Look at verse 9. No one who is born of God practices sin. He's reiterating what he's been saying here. And the idea is that that person does not have as his or her primary modus operandi, primary way of living, to be a sinner. That's something that is the result of that person being in Christ and Christ being in us. And Jesus Christ will not let you alone nor me alone when we live in a habitual state of sin. We practice sin. And then verse 10, the Bible says... That by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. That by way of reading the scripture in its entirety, I'll be alluding to it further this morning. But what I want to begin with is something I read that was on Fox News Digital And it was a letter written by a woman by the name of Rebecca Koffler. Rebecca was born in Russia when Russia was still a communist regime. She told of how in 1917, when Lenin led a revolution that turned Russia upside down and associated countries upside down, She told how soon thereafter, in January of 1918, he took a pen in his hand, and in one stroke of the pen, he canceled Christmas. From that point forward, to celebrate Christmas was illegal. In fact, it would lead to one's imprisonment, perhaps even being exiled on a gulag in Siberia. It was awful to be a Christian and speak of being a Christian at that time. And you can imagine that, what that did to the nation. The nation had a long history of being Christian. It's debatable as to where it was Orthodox Christianity as we would think of it, even though the Russian Orthodox Church was the primary church, there were non-Russian Orthodox believers in the country, But instead of the cross, there were no more crosses publicly displayed on what once were church buildings or any kind of sign of it. Here again, there was great penalty. In its place came the hammer and the sickle. No pictures of Jesus in public or even in the privacy of your home. You are always going to be subject to punishment for those things But what we know was that Lenin's picture was everywhere. Lenin himself didn't live very long after the revolution. And interestingly enough, he was assassinated by one who had been his comrade. She was more radical than he. She was from Ukraine. And I thought as I did my research on this, if the Ukrainian bitterness toward Russia had, in some way, connected to that event. But she said that she had expected there to be a certain amount of democracy in the sense that she had sided with an even more conservative party than Lenin, and she took his life, well, we know what happened to her. She was executed, too. Lenin tried to steal Christmas. Just like so many people over time have tried to steal Christmas. But they never are successful finally, are they? Jesus is still worshipped in Russia and in Ukraine and the United States. There's not a nation in the world where Jesus is not worshipped on Christmas Day. Some people have to do it quietly, but... They do it at their own risk in many situations. It's because Satan tried to steal Christmas. And when we think about this, we think about how Joseph was ready to divorce his wife privately, remembering that when a woman was engaged to a man, she was considered legally married. They had not come together. There was a period of betrothal that usually lasted about a year. But Joseph, being the kind of man he was, and we can see why Jesus picked him for being his stepfather, if you will, or adoptive father would be better, because of the kind of man he was. But what happened? The angel of the Lord intervened, didn't he, and came to him in a dream. Then Herod tried to kill Jesus, didn't he? Certainly he did. When he found out through the Magi that they were coming in response to a prophecy and a star to try to determine who this new king of Israel was, he was all upset. And he gave an order to his crack troops to go into Bethlehem where the prophets told him, they knew Micah 5 too, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of Ephratah. And he sent them and told him to slay all the children under the age of two, the male children. But the, here again, the angel of the Lord came and gave warning to Joseph. And he took the family into safety by traveling to Egypt. Christ prevailed as he always has and he always will. When there's an effort to steal Christmas from the Lord Jesus Christ. The two main reasons, as we've already seen in this passage, as to why Christ came, first of all, was to take away sin. It's not by accident that the Scripture uses one word that John has used in John chapter 1 when he describes what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus for the first time coming by. He had an epiphany, and this is what he said. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Take away the sin of the world. That was used by John the Baptist when Jesus first was identified in public as being the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist mixed his figures of speech. Why do I say that when he said, Behold the Lamb of God? takes away the sin of the world. Because the lamb obviously is a reference to the Passover lamb. And you know the story of the exodus and the final miracle that occurred of the ten that finally pushed Pharaoh over the edge and he allowed Israel to go free. How the Passover of the death angel over the homes of those Israelis who heard what God had told them through Moses and they had sacrificed a blemishless lamb and they had eaten the Passover meal and what had they done with the blood that was shed by the sacrificial animal? They put it over the doorpost and the lintel of their homes. And when the death angel came over, passed over. So we know that Jesus was the Lamb of God in the sense he's the Passover Lamb. Shed his blood for our sin. But the other figure of speech, and it comes right out of the book of Leviticus, he combines the two, is the idea of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Once a year, even to this day, Jewish people who are followers of the Torah, they observe Yom Kippur and they don't have animals to sacrifice. There were two animals, not just one, not just one lamb per family, but two animals. They were both goats. One blood was shed. The blood was taken by the high priest into the Holy of Holies where that blood was poured over the lid of the Ark of the Covenant called the Mercy Seat, and God atoned the sins of the people from that sacrifice. The other goat was taken out away from the camp as to symbolize how when people of God in Israel did have a true day of repentance, they received atonement. And part of that was that the scapegoat, that's where the word scapegoat, the idea comes from, would be led away in the wilderness until it could be seen no more. That's who Jesus is. He comes to take away our sin. What qualifies Him for this is the obvious. He is sinless. And in this passage of Scripture, this statement about what sin is, is not the only statement in Scripture. But it probably is the most comprehensive of all the possible statements. Look again in verse For everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. What law is being referred to here? Well, it's the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and associated laws. And what we know is that Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly to every jotting and every tittle, every. He crossed every period, place where it belonged. Jesus did it all in order to save us. He was able to take away our sin because he was without blemish. Jesus was perfect because there is no sin, was no sin in him. Aren't you blessed to know that we have such a Savior who would die for us? He was righteous. We saw that from chapter 1 and 2. We see it here. He is righteous. And that means that he was a person who was not just externally keeping the law. But that ability, the power to keep it came from who he was internally. And when the scripture says in verse 6, No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. What does it mean to abide in Christ? Jesus says, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. We are in this relationship. Once we come to Christ, Jesus comes to indwell us. And his presence in us gives us the capacity and the expectation That's important. That we are going to be like Christ in the sense that we have a great reduction of lawlessness in our lives and we have an increase of righteousness. Why? Because Jesus is in our lives and we are yielded to Him. And the result is that we are people who are like Christ, not perfect, but a long way away from where we were when we began. Do you remember when you first came to Christ? Some of you have a story that would curl the hair of some people here. To hear it, people like me who who were raised in a Christian home and had parents who took me to church. I've already confirmed that. And I lived to tell the story, by the way. But we know that Jesus, He comes to people at different times of lives, their lives. Nobody comes to Christ at a specific age. It's not when you're conform- confirmed by the church. That doesn't convey salvation to you. It's a good practice in the sense that parents want their children to understand who Christ is and how He died for our sins and was raised from the dead. But it all comes down to giving our lives to Jesus. And when we do, it's like a light comes on where there was darkness. And we have capacity to understand things that despite how smart we are or how educated we may be, we just couldn't quite understand from the Bible because Christ comes and dwells in us and he enables us to be all that He would have us to be, so that we do not continue to practice sin. Well, let's spend the remaining time, this is what really initially draw, drew me to this passage of Scripture. But it would be incomplete did I not mention that Christ appeared to take away sin. What I'm about to say would not work were it not for the fact that the first thing Jesus did was take away sin. But what we understand is Christ came to destroy the works of Satan by taking sin away. He had to do it. Well, let's think about the nature of the devil. He is described in this passage of Scripture as the sinner from the beginning. We don't know exactly when his sin occurred. There are differences of opinion. This is why I asked Drew to read out of the book of Ezekiel chapter 28. And where, if you read it, it's talking about the king of Tyre, but it talks about he was in Eden, and he was perfect, he was beautiful. If we also read the 14th chapter of Isaiah, jot that down at your leisure, read it. It's another description of a human leader, but when you read it, you have to conclude there's more than just a human being referred to there. It is a reference to Satan as well. He was a sinner. He was the master sinner. Lenin, Vladimir Lenin, about whom I spoke earlier, was known within communism as the chief revolutionary. He was the head honcho of the revolution. Here's another thing about Lenin. His father was a devout member of his church. His mother was not. In fact, she probably had negative influence, not simply due to her lack of involvement, but because she probably conveyed some of her thinking to Lenin as he grew up. But Jesus tells us that Satan is the master sinner. What are the works of the devil? These are really important for you and me to grasp. And I don't pretend to be covering every base about his nature. But the first thing I thought of was he is a defector. And what is sin unless it's defecting, going away from God? He had all the things he needed to know he was important. He is described as the bright star in heaven. He's Lucifer, the light, the bright light. But he defected, and he took angels with him. Most scholars are agreed that in the book of Revelation, when the 12th chapter, the scripture talks about how when he left, there were a third of the stars came down, came down from heaven and So he defected. And he leaves a great herd of people in defection. Secondly, we know that he's a deceiver. Jesus, in conversation with the religious leaders of the day, they were in a debate. You remember this? And he said to them, You are of your father the devil. Now, Jesus could get in your face, couldn't he? And he would say that to us. The truth is, before we come to Christ, We're not children of God. He creates us, but we still are alienated from Him because of our sin. And where does the sin originate? It originates with Satan, and he influences us in this regard. But he is a deceiver. He continues to deceive, doesn't he? In the book of 2 Corinthians, there are two references I need to touch on. The first is found in chapter 4, verse 4. And this is what it says. The God of this age, speaking of the devil, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Satan blinds us. He comes and sells us a bill of goods. And then later in that same book, in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, 14, the Bible says, He is an angel of light disguising himself as an angel of light. This is who he is. And so we see he is the master deceiver. He comes and whispers in our ear sometime that it's okay. You're you're saved from your sins and you can do what you want to do. And we ignore what the scripture says is to be true for us who know Jesus Christ. It's not a good thing to fall into the trap of deception that the devil loves to set for us who know Jesus Christ. The Bible talks about him in this way in the book of 1 Peter. It says that he is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so he goes around trying to undo people who know Christ by deceiving them. He's also a destroyer. Jesus talks about him in this way. He comes to steal to kill, and to destroy. He destroys through sin and ultimately through death. And finally, if people don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, everlasting destruction is what the Bible says in the book of Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. Murder. Murder is always instigated by the devil. Because he was a murderer also from the beginning. He's a defamer. That is to say, he's one who slanders us. Do you know the word devil? Diabolos is the way it sounds. Sounds a lot like the Spanish word for the devil, doesn't it? And the word in its basic meaning is slanderer. The devil is a slanderer, and he is a defamer he lives the bible says to accuse us to the lord the last thing i would note about him he is a tyrant he is a despot if you have your bible open turn back to your left just a few books to the book of second timothy And we're going to look at verses 24 through 26 of Second Timothy chapter 2. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. That's the role of a pastor-teacher like Myself. And they may come to their senses and look at this part escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So he is one who loves to rule it over people, lord it over people. He loves to make life miserable for us. And we who know Jesus, don't have to give in to that kind of stuff, do we? Let's think about those five descriptive words that I use for him and see what Jesus is, comparatively speaking. Jesus is no defector. He has no sin, this text says that. He kept every law and he empowers us to grow in obedience and righteousness. Jesus is no deceiver. What is one of the words he uses of himself? Truth. He says, if you abide in my word, you will do what? You will be verifying you are a disciple of mine. And you shall know the truth, namely himself, but also the scriptures. Because he says in chapter 17, 17, your word is truth. We'll know the truth. And what does the truth do? Sets us free. That's what it does. We are set free from bondage to our sin and all the problems which come into our lives because we, see, we will not listen to God and will not follow the Lord's will. What about the idea of being a destroyer? Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will have eternal life. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the life. He's the light of men. And in him there is no darkness at all, the Bible says. And he gives life to us. What a great Savior we have in Jesus Christ. Aren't you pleased to know that he came to take away your sin and to destroy the works of the devil? The devil hates us because we belong to God. He hates us because each one of us, before we come to Christ, We still have the image of God in us, but that image is marred by our own sin in this life. And He comes and He wipes the slate clean, gives us a fresh start. Is Jesus someone who defames us, accuses us? To the contrary, in the book of Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, the Bible says that He intercedes for us day and night. Satan accuses us as believers, what is Jesus doing? He's pleading our case and he always wins. Jesus has never lost a a case when he was in that situation. And what about Jesus? Is Jesus a tyrannical leader? Is he a despot? Is he a harsh taskmaster? Listen to what he says in one place. There are many I could go to, but listen to what he says. He says this, Take my yoke upon you, that means submit yourself to me, and learn from me, that means be discipled by me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. If you're restless this morning, and you would know whether you are, if you're restless, your restlessness is directly related to submitting to the Lord. And trusting him with your life fully. This is the best Christmas you and I can have if we understand that the devil has been defeated by the Lord. I want to conclude with four quick scriptural references. The first is found in Romans sixteen twenty, And it says this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What's that all about? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I believe it's directly related to what we know as the armor of God found in Ephesians 6. And what is the armor of God? Well, it's that which God gives us to ward off the devil. It's the belt of truth. Truth. We've talked about truth. Jesus is the truth and the word of God is truth, right? So we're to put the belt of truth on, just like a Roman soldier would do so to take his tunic, which was almost down to his feet, and pull it up and tuck it under when he was getting ready for battle. So he wouldn't trip over his own clothing. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, That covers the heart. We are righteous in Christ. When God sees you now, if you know Jesus Christ, you are righteous. He knows better when you're off on a journey away from Him, like the prodigal son was on. He knows, but He's going to bring you home. But meanwhile, we who are walking with the Lord, we have His righteousness. And the devil comes against us at that and tells us we're no good, it's not true we are in Christ and therefore we're ultimately valuable to God the Father so we put on what? the belt of truth the breastplate breastplate of righteousness and then we fit our feet with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace that's where I was getting to here and that's sharing the gospel you know how we crush the head of the devil we know in Genesis 3 when Paul was writing, I mean, uh, Moses was writing what had happened in conversation between Eve and God after she had sinned. You remember that he said that the serpent is going to bite your heel, but your offspring, and that was a reference to Christ really, first messianic prophecy is going to crush him in the head. That's what we're to do. The preaching of the gospel, I'm not talking about what I'm doing, okay? Don't confuse. I'm talking about sharing Jesus Christ with other people and letting Him use you to bring a person to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and come to know Jesus. That's how we win the battle against the enemy, the devil, The Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 3.3, the scripture says, God is faithful. He will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. If we know the Lord Jesus Christ, what we can be sure of is that He's going to give us the strength when we find ourselves in moments of temptation to overcome and to say no to ourselves and deny ourselves in order that we may say yes to the Lord Jesus Christ. He will protect us. And then in this book we're looking at today, 1 John, if you have your Bible open there, go to chapter 4, verse 4, and it concludes with these words. Greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. Who is in us. We've seen it in this brief passage of Scripture. Who indwells us. Jesus Christ by His Spirit lives in us. And we have no excuse... To be afraid or to languish in sin because he's in us and he gives us the power to believe and trust in a peace that passes all understanding when we're in a trial in our lives. But also when we're dabbling in sin or have in some cases dived headlong into a sinful lifestyle, what he does, he brings us out of that because of his great love for us. So it's true that there have been efforts to steal Christmas by the devil through people like Lennon and many others, but they always end up failing, don't they? The devil is one who is very persistent, but he's a loser. I just want to put him on notice today. You're a loser, Satan, and you know it. And the future is very dim for you. We need to know it in the sense that we want to help other people. You know, the problem in America and the problem all over this world, we're in a chaotic situation. You know what the problem is? It's we have not shared the gospel as we should. The thing, and the only thing that will change this nation and change the world, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to encourage you in the coming year to spend more time sharing Christ with people than you do talking about world events or national events. Because those people who are on the side of the devil, they're blinder than bats spiritually. And the way we can help them is to share the gospel and they can come to know Jesus Christ and they will be set free from the bondage they have to Him And God will bring a revival in our nation. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for today. Thank you for everyone who came. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to take something from this passage of Scripture that we can ponder, meditate on, and apply going forward into this last week of 2022 and looking forward to 2023. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.